Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Gotta go. Bye. Blog Talk Radio. Hello. This is Gigabit Nation. Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles. And I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be in the U.S. Uh, recently, in a survey of economic development professionals, uh, we asked a couple of questions related to broadband and education. And one of the things that was interesting, uh, about 40% of those surveyed indicated that um, they felt that programs such as the FCC's E-rate uh, program was very valuable for leveraging broadband to improve education. However, another 45% said the program is difficult to implement. And we've actually had a couple of shows here uh, dealing with um, E-Rate, the, the program, and how it's implemented. And there's definitely uh, consistent feedback that this has uh, uh, the implementation process for E-Rate is definitely a bear and not to be taken lightly. There's a nonprofit out of San Francisco, California, that is actually taking on the challenge of not only trying to make the E-rate program uh, more efficient, more effective, but also trying to lower the cost of um, getting broadband technology into the schools. So I uh, invited the CEO and founder of Education Superhighway to be our guest today and to talk about their program, what they uh, plan to accomplish, you know, what have they accomplished so far, and to give us some more insights about how we can make the E-rate program much more effective. So I'd like to um, introduce Evan Marwell, who is the, like I said, CEO and founder of Education Superhighway. Evan, good morning. Good morning. Great to be here today. Thank you. Um, let's talk about uh, your organization. Uh, what does it do? Uh, and, and maybe a little bit of background about how it was that, that you folks uh, have come together on what is a fairly um, daunting mission, I guess, if you look at it from, from the outside. Yeah, great. Well, so Education Superhighway is a nonprofit, and our mission is to upgrade the Internet access at every public school in America. And when we say upgrade the Internet access, we mean both the amount of bandwidth that's getting to the school door, as well as the wired and wireless networks inside the school so that bandwidth, that broadband, can actually get to the student's desk and to their device. We started back in January of 2012, and really we answered a call from uh, President Obama saying, hey, we need to, we need to fix, make sure that our schools are, are competitive in the 21st century. And from our point of view, one of the most scalable things that we can do today to, to provide equal opportunity uh, for all of our kids and equal access to educational opportunity is to make sure that every kid has the opportunity to take advantage of digital learning. There are Mm -hmm. amazing things being done in classrooms across America today, both in rural and urban and suburban classrooms, in rich districts and poor districts, but the underlying requirement is you've got to have robust broadband. And Mm -hmm. when we uh, looked at the problem back in uh, actually 2011, what we found, the early indicators were that 80% of our schools in this country didn't have enough broadband. And so that's what ended us up in a conversation about this at the White House, and that's why we decided to start Education Superhighway. Wow. And so when you started, uh, how many folks were part of that, um, that, that starting organization, and, and how did you 
pull all the pieces together. I mean, one day there's not a nonprofit, and the next day there is, but there had to be something in between there, between inspiration and, and opening the doors. Well, I'll tell you, there, there wasn't much. Uh, really, it was just myself and, and one other person, a guy named Tony Sway, who uh, helped me start the organization. And, um, you know, the two of us had worked together a long time ago as management consultants. And so the first thing that we did is we, we did sort of that management consulting uh, study of the problem to try to understand what, what were the roadblocks that were preventing schools from getting on the education superhighway, from getting the bandwidth that their kids needed um, for digital learning. And what we found were there were four key things holding, holding upgrades back. The first was awareness of the problem. Um, nobody at the federal policy level, or frankly even the state policy level, really was focused on broadband in schools as a problem. And so we knew that our first challenge was to change that and to raise awareness. Um, the second challenge was technical expertise. Um, most of the school districts in this country don't have a lot of technical expertise around networking in particular. Um, their tech support people uh, are so focused on just trying to support the computers and software and everything else being used that networking is typically an afterthought. And only in the largest school districts in this country do you find people that have expertise around uh, networking technology. The third problem was procurement. Um, the median school today pays about $25 per megabit per month for their bandwidth. That's like you or I paying $500 a month for our cable modem at home. It's just too much. And if you look at the best schools, the top 25% of schools in terms of their ability to buy bandwidth, they're paying as little as $4 a month. And so we knew that another issue was the affordability of broadband and the prices people were paying. And then the fourth issue was policy. And in this case, policy meant primarily the E-rate program. And E-rate uh, at, at once was both the hero in waiting as well as the, one of the major things that need to be fixed. Um, because of E-rate, we have almost $2.5 billion a year to spend on broadband and Wi-Fi infrastructure and things like that for our schools and libraries. Unfortunately, the program was created uh, nearly 18 years ago and hasn't really been updated for sort of the Web 2.0 and the high-speed world that we live in today. And so it wasn't, and the month, so that $2.4 billion isn't being spent effectively to get schools what they need. And so when we got started, we said, all right, those are the four problems we need to address. Now let's build an organization to do that. Well, <laughs> that's a very interesting um, it's an interesting assessment, and it is also, um, you know, very interesting that you now have put this this organization together to uh, to, to, to tackle this. How do you how do you you know the thing is so huge? I guess the first question is how do you prioritize your approach? You know, I mean, just in terms of. Uh, I mean, if you just take, take E-rate reform alone, I mean, there's got to be, a, uh, you know, several dozen moving aspects of that that you could possibly attack. And then you, then you add on, you know, the issue of procurement. You add on the issue of uh, expertise in the schools and so forth. I mean, it's just, it's monumental. How, how did you guys kind of prioritize your attack on yeah. your approach on this? We, that, yeah, it's a great question. So, First of all, you know, it's a big problem. There's no doubt about it. But at the same time, it's a discrete problem. There are only 100,000 public schools in the United States, okay? So this is a very defined problem and one that we can track our progress and know how we're doing. The mm -hmm. second important thing is that because we have E-rate, there's actually money to actually fix this problem, right? So from our mind, from our point of view, this was not a gigantic task akin to, like, mm, solving world hunger, right? We had mm -hmm. 100,000 schools that we needed to get upgraded, and the money was there to do it if we could only make sure it was spent right. Okay, so how did we prioritize? Well, the first thing we said is we, we sort of looked back on our experience, and, 
You know, when I was a young management consultant just out of college, I, I like to tell this story about how I was working on a project and I was going down with the partner for a meeting with the CEO of the third largest pharmaceutical company in the world. And I'd done all the work and I knew all the material and so on and so on. And on the way down, the partner said to me, okay, you're going to present today. And I looked at him and I'm sa I said, I'm going to present to the CEO? Yeah. He's like, yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah, you're going to do it. You know this material really well. And I said, yeah, but, you know, pardon me, but I'm 23 years old, just out of college, and we're going to be in a room with the CEO who's in his 50s and his senior management team. Like, why are they going to listen to me? And what he said to me was, he said, they're going to listen to you because you have data and everyone else in the room has opinions. And sure enough, that, that was true. We had, I had data and everyone else had opinions, and so the CEO listened to me. Well, the same, that's the same philosophy that we've brought to our work at Education Superhighway. You know, we were a small team. We started out as two of us. You know, today we're almost 20. Um, even then, even today, still a small team relative to the, you know, thousands of people who work in the government and, and the lobbyists and the, the, the people from industry and the school groups and everyone else. We were just a small organization. And we decided if we were going to have any impact on this, we had to bring data. So the first thing that we did is we said, you know what, if we need to build awareness, we need some data that shows that this is a problem. So we launched something called the National School Speed Test, where we developed a web application where anyone could go to the website, schoolspeedtest.org, pick their school, and run a speed test. And then we recorded that data, the results, to a database. And today we've had three quarters of a million people in over 30,000 schools, that's over, almost a third of the schools in the country, run that test. And that gave us the first robust data set uh, across the nation of where our schools stand. And what it told us when we released the first results was that 72% of our schools didn't have the bandwidth that they needed for digital learning. And that was, that was a monumental piece of information. And with that information, we were able to then dramatically raise awareness of this problem at both the federal level and at the state level. We have 30 states that partnered with us to do that work and other work that we've done. And, and really, I like to think that while it wasn't the only thing that made it happen, um, those speed test results were certainly one of the major catalysts for President Obama saying, you know what, this is a problem that our administration, my administration is going to solve, and he launched last June the Connect Ed program to upgrade our schools. So that was our first approach. Similarly, with E-rate reform, we said, hey, the only way we're going to get any traction on E-rate reform is if we bring data. And so we've done a tremendous amount of work uh, over the last two years bringing data to the FCC about their own program. Because one of the shocking things that we learned very early on is the FCC has almost no data on how they spend money in E-rate and what they're getting for it. And so we started creating that data. And just a couple of weeks ago, we, we released um, a major report called uh, Connecting America's Students, Opportunities for Action, where we, at, we, we did the most comprehensive analysis of E-rate spending ever done, looking at over $300 million of spending in over 1,000 districts, covering over, over 11,000 schools and 6 million kids. And that data has enabled us to start to really drive the agenda, the modernization agenda at the FCC. So data has been a huge part of what we're doing. Similarly, as we look to accelerate upgrades in schools by helping them with their technical expertise issues and their procurement expertise issues, we're using data. We're using data to provide transparency to schools on what they should be paying for stuff and we're using data to help people understand what they need to upgrade their networks. So what, um, what kind of recommendations uh, come from that? I mean, on one hand, you're saying we're bringing in this data to show that there are, you know, inefficiencies or, I don't know, you know, um, too much being spent for X, Y, and Z. 
do you, are they, who, who develops, you know, I guess a set of rep recommendations or action plans based on that data then? Right. So we definitely have, have our own point of view on what the, the FCC should be doing with, with E-rate, what states should be doing in terms of their own state policies to help schools get the bandwidth they need, and what school districts should be doing. So I'm happy to talk you through a couple of those. But on the mm -hmm. E-rate front, the first thing is we've got to focus the program on what really matters for advancing learning, and that is broadband. Today, of the 2.4, a little over $2.4 billion being uh, spent by the E-rate program every year, over $1.1 billion of that is being spent on what we call legacy services. That's telephone okay. service, that's cell phones, that's web hosting, and that's email none of which are helping move learning forward in our classrooms. So the first policy recommendation is stop spending money on that stuff. Phase out support for that so that we can go from spending about a billion three a year on broadband to spending 2.4 billion a year on broadband. So that's policy recommendation number one. This, this, the, the second policy recommendation is we've got to make broadband more affordable. And there are a number of key levers that the FCC can pull to do that. The first is making sure that we, we purchase broadband at scale. It turns out that when you buy a gigabit of broadband, it costs dramatically less than when you buy 10 or 100 megabits of broadband. So the next thing is encouraging schools to actually buy more and to join together to actually buy so that they can get the best deals. That's one. Second, mm -hmm. increased transparency. It turns out that there's huge variation in what schools, even similarly situated schools, in the same geographic areas pay for their broadband. And we think a big part of that is because they don't have good information on what they should be paying. And so simply by publishing our report that showed that the average cost of a one gigabit circuit today is just over $1,200. We think we've already, our phone's been ringing off the hook from states and districts saying, hey, how come we can't get that, that kind of pricing when that's sort of the national average? So that's gonna change the conversation. And there's a lot the FCC can do to make the data about purchasing in, in the E-rate program really transparent. It took us eight months of work to, to put together the data we needed for our report. The FCC could make, that, make all the data in the program available overnight by simply adopting the open data uh, policy that, uh, and executive order that the White House has issued. And we think that's an incredibly important thing. And mm -hmm. then the third major policy recommendation, um, and there's four, the third major one is we need to get all of our schools on fiber. 98% of our schools in this country are going, to need, are going to need a fiber connection if they're going to get the bandwidth that they need for 21st century learning and digital learning. Um, and to do that, the FCC needs to invest money in helping with fiber build-outs. Commercial carriers will build out to lots of places where they think that they can get an economic return. But there's still many schools in this country that are not in those areas, whether it's rural areas or whether it's our poorest urban areas, where commercial guys don't have an, enough of an economic incentive to put in the infrastructure to, to get it to the schools. So we've got to support that with specific funding for that. And then the last thing is we need to increase competition. One of the things in our report that we showed is that when people buy from the traditional incumbent carriers, whether it's the phone companies or the cable companies, they tend to pay anywhere from two to four times more for their broadband than they do when they have a competitive alternative. And so getting competitive providers and creating incentives for competitive providers to provide service to schools is really, really important. Whoa, okay. This is... Um... <laughs> Wow, that's a lot, it's a lot of information, yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, in, but in some respects, though, 
what you are saying is very similar to what a lot of us in the broadband industry, uh, pundits and, and media folk and so forth, are basically saying that, you know, part of the problem, a lot of the problem is the lack of competition. The other side of the coin is that a lot of where the need exists, it isn't very attractive to commercial uh, endeavors. And I think that the broadband stimulus was, uh, was one step by the administration to address uh, not so much the competition issue, but at least to give money so that somebody could afford to go out and, and build networks in rural communities and, 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 and that kind of thing. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting that you guys, in essence, had to do all this research to discover what is, I don't know, I think a lot of folks around the, the, the country already understand this issue. You know, I mean, what, I, I mean, I don't want to, you know, dump on, on the FCC, but at the same time, how is it that there is this disconnect of understanding what the baseline problem is and, you know, by those folks who are responsible for addressing it? Because, I mean, like, the E-Ray program has been around for a while. It's not this new program that just hatched somewhere two years ago. So, why? You know, I mean, what, we're, why are we at this point? Yeah, I, you know, honestly, data. I think the reason that the FCC and the administration are acting on this today is because there's hard, concrete evidence of the problem as opposed to just opinions. Okay. Data is the catalyst. I, I, I really believe that data has been the catalyst of this. Huh. And there's, there's more than that. As it relates to E-rate, there is also a real sense of urgency, okay? So um, there's two things that are happening that make it really important to fix this problem now. The first thing is that as the Common Core is rolling out in states around the country, one of the things that schools need to do is they need to be able to do online assessments. And without robust Internet infrastructure, they can't. And so that has helped bring focus to this problem as it relates to schools and the E-rate program. The second thing, though, is that in the E-rate program, there has become, uh, you've gone through a, a transition where there was money available for both getting broadband to the school door and distributing it to the student's desk to the point where, as the demand for broadband has continued to grow, just the money, all the money was going to just getting it to the school door. And so there was a real crisis out in the schools and in the program, then, and something needed to be done to address that. So those were additional things. But honestly, I think a lot of what's compelled action here has been um, data. When we first showed up at the FCC and told them, that they were spending $600 million a year or more on phone service in the E-rate program, they thought we were insane. They said there is no way we are spending that much money on phone service. And then we showed them the data, and two weeks later they came back and they said, uh, yeah, you know, you're probably right. And so just little pieces of data like that, having hard evidence that 72% of our schools last year didn't have enough bandwidth to implement digital learning and that close to two-thirds didn't have enough bandwidth to implement the online assessments, that is data that catalyzed action. So basically, if, if I follow this to its logical conclusion, what you're saying is that for those of us who are wondering how do you move, you know, a government entity as large and entrenched as the FCC is, you're saying that to bring and basically beat them over the head with data to bring and, and emphasize the point is about the best way to get them to act with any sense of urgency. Yeah, look, I think there's always, I live by the motto that it's better to be lucky than smart. 
And so being in the right place at the right time when there's appetite and other things going on and a sense of urgency, you know, a sense of, wow, here's something that maybe we need to fix is obviously important. But yes, I think one of the things that's happening in government today in the 21st century is that what people call evidence-based policymaking or data-based advocacy is, is coming to the fore as a way to get things done. And so you've got to have you got to have context, but you've got to have data to show what can be done if the government takes action. The other thing I think, though, you need to do is, I mean, clearly there's tons of politics in, involved in all this. So you have to have a certain degree of political savvy and, and, uh, and be willing to, you know, work within that framework as well. And I'd say the other thing that was really helpful for us as Education Superhighway is that we are in this very unique position which we are an advocate for schools, but we are not a beneficiary of this program, right? So everything we say, people believe, is honestly for the benefit of our kids. And being in that unique position of not benefiting from the program in any way, which is highly unusual in most cases, um, really gives us a lot of credibility. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's... You know, I guess the most, one of the most phenomenal aspects of this is that um, you guys are fairly new and uh, not, well, okay, maybe in education circles, high pro, high, uh, well known, but not necessarily high profile. I mean, it, it's, you, I mean, you guys are a small group here in, um, in, in, in the Bay Area, in California, so you're not even part of the Beltway you know, environment, you don't breathe the same air, yet you're able to move this thing forward based on pulling together the, 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 the data is, huh, I guess I'm just having to, to, to stop and absorb this for a second because, you know, I, I think in, in the circles, at least the ones that I hang out with, you know, we're having conversation like, how do we move things forward? How do we get the FCC to respond? You know, it's like the, now we got the whole net neutrality debate in full swing, and everybody's like, how do you get these folks to listen? And 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 what you're saying is just a very basic roll up with a whole bunch of data that's verifiable, that's valid, and 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 start the discussion from there, and. Maybe we too, you know, in the rank and file, can also have have an impact on the organization. I mean, is that is that your sense? Is that you know, it's not necessarily I, just E-rate that'll respond to this. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely think so. I think one of the things that uh, the chairman of the FCC, Tom Wheeler, has been very clear about is that he is a practical, data-driven guy, and whether it's E-rate or the IP transition or net neutrality, or many of the other things that they're working on there, the, the, the wireless incentive options, they are very data-driven in what they're doing. And I think if you have compelling data and it's, you know, you're not sort of tweaking that data in a way that you, know, you stand to benefit for some reason, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there, we spent a year developing credibility that we were really just in this for the kids. Um, I think that there is a lot of openness to an, a, an ability for small organizations or big ones who take that approach to get the FCC to act. And not okay. just the FCC. I think you're going to see this across all branches of government. Now, I mean, look for, instance, look, for instance, at the Department of Education, right? So this mm-hmm. week or either this week or last, they just issued a bunch of um, – uh, uh, guidelines and, and policies around um, uh, asking colleges to deal more aggressively with the issues of sexual harassment at schools and in colleges, right? Mm-hmm. Why did they do that? Because somebody looked at the data and showed them the data about what was going on and brought this to their attention as, a, as an important issue that needed to be addressed where there were, where there were obvious solutions of things people could do, right? And mm-hmm. they acted. And I think you can go from, you know, I'm sure there are examples in virtually every part of government where that's the case. And that's, and that's partly what's behind 
President Obama's executive order to make the data of the federal government open. Because mm-hmm. the more open that data is, the more folks like us will be able to use it to analyze policy, to analyze impact, and help drive change. And, and uh, you know, because I was, before we started the show, I was actually wondering about the, um, this data issue. I mean, you and I didn't talk ahead of time like I do with, with a lot of guests. I didn't have a lot of, other than what I got from your website, but because, oh, what was it, yesterday, I guess it was yesterday then it was that the announcement came out or the executive order, um, the question, the one question I had when I read through, you know, these are the list of steps the administration is taking, and it talked in several places about collecting data, you know, and so my first reaction was, well, what the hell good is that going to do to collect a bunch of data? You know, it seems very passive and very wonky and, you know, and just, you know, bureaucratic. It's not like it's putting things off. But what you're describing, you know, as you, as you went through the whole thing about the collecting of the data, now all of a sudden it makes sense because um, bureaucrats and elected officials are, I don't know, inertia is probably the best thing to describe them a lot of time. I mean, people talk about them being poll-driven, you know, what's the latest polls, and, and, which is probably a hint of what you're really talking about, which is, Polls are just data. It's just another number that says, right now, your position is X. And if that changes, you know, you got to do something. And, and, and because it's their political survival, elected politicians, you know, are very well tuned to that. And so what you're describing is basically a, a cultural mindset of the average bureaucrat. And so subsequently, you know, you, you start the, the – the, the process from there. Well, let me ask another question, right? So I look at the E-rate program, and, uh, you know, I've had a couple of the FCC commissioners and or their staff on the show, you know, and we've talked about moving things forward or, or to change and reform and so forth, right? So I have this, this thing. Uh, Commissioner Clyburn and I had a back and forth about, you know, getting communities to be responsible for making the decisions and having greater input in which vendors they choose, which programs they use, which technology they use, because obviously they own uh, the situation. So if my goal or, you know, say the advocacy community's goal was to try to influence that kind of a change on how the E-rate program is, is administered, Right to give more local control and decision making. Are you saying then that we should start that discussion from a position of data? We should gather a bunch of data points that talk about I don't know how either more efficient local buys are, or or some you know some something that shows the percentage of you know local folks that are involved in in education decision making. I mean, how would I bridge what you've just described as a as a, a key tactic, you know, the one of using data with you know trying to get say a very specific type of reform done on the C-rate issue. Right. So so uh, let let's just back up a second because I think the question about local control um, you know today E-rate is all about local control, right? Schools basically say, hey, we want to do this, and as long as it's within the eligible services list, then um, uh, it gets approved, okay? So they can choose to do whatever they want. They want to put in, they want to use a fiber connection or a, 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 a wireless connection or a copper connection. They can choose. Now, what's missing, and I think what you're really driving at, is do schools have all the options available to them? In other words, if, if a school wants to build its own fiber network to connect its schools, can it do that under the, the E-rate program? You know, mm-hmm. If a school wants to lease dark fiber, can it do that under the E-rate program? You know, some of the, the, the things that I think are, are where you're really driving at. And the answer is no. Okay, So I think that the challenge that you're really talking about is how do we make sure that that schools, that local communities have the widest range of choices available to them 
about how to get their broadband, okay? And so how do you do that with data? Well, one of the ways that we've done that, we've attempted to sort of address this with data, is to show that the cost, what's the cost when you buy from an incumbent? What's the cost when you buy from a competitive provider? What's the cost when you lease, your, lease dark fiber? And what's the cost when you self-provision? And we've collected data on those, and it shows that that curve is down and to the right. So as you go from the incumbents to the, to the competitive providers, you cut your costs by half to two-thirds. As you go from the competitive providers to least dark fiber, you cut your cost again by probably 40% or 50%. And as you go from there to self-provisioned dark fiber, you go down and you cut your costs another 75% from there. So, so there, that's one way to use data that show, to show that the abundance of choices really matters. At a more specific micro-market level, the way I would use data is by saying, hey, let's go out into a whole bunch of markets, places that communities that want to do something, and let's show this is the prices that I can get from an incumbent, and if E-rate would only allow me to self-provision my own fiber or would allow me to, to, to pay for the optical electronics I need so that I can actually make use of least dark fiber, I could cut the cost of, to the E-rate program and massively increase my bandwidth, and, 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 and there's data, right? That's how you use data. So... Um are you guys are you guys uh, tied in with the various uh, public advocacy groups? Meaning, you know, there's there's public knowledge and there's free press and there are I don't know another half a dozen dozen, uh, you know, consumer oriented um, advocacy groups. But are you guys linked with them and their efforts in any way? Uh, no, I mean, they, some of them have participated in the E-rate proceeding, filing their own comments, but mm -hmm. we, we don't have any kind of formal relationships with any of them. We, we do partner a lot with um, uh, two groups in particular, uh, well, three groups. So one is we partner with state departments of education a lot, um, and that's been, you know, through our work on the speed test and other and data collection for our, our big E-rate analysis. Um, we also partner with uh, the State Education Technology Directors Association a lot, CETA, uh, um, and, and we share a lot of the same views. And, uh, and we're currently partnering with um, the Consortium on School Networking, or COSIN, on, on doing some work around building a model for you know, what does it cost to actually have a robust um, uh, wired and wireless network inside a school? So we mm -hmm. partner with those organizations quite a lot. Um, we also, you know, we'll partner, I mean, we'll partner with anyone who wants to help make progress on our mission. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, to me, having had a bunch of conversations with um, a number of these advocacy groups, what seems to be missing from time to time is a um, cohesiveness of, of strategy and, and focus. Now, they will all come together for this, you know, this net neutrality issue, right? That has unified all of the, 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 the groups and so forth. But I think what's missing is for this sort of everyday exercise of, um, you know, trying to move the FCC in a certain specific policy direction that all of those groups would benefit from your basic philosophy of how you gather data and how you use data. Even though, say, public knowledge or free press may have a sideline uh, view or value on, on, on you know, the E-rate program or addressing the E-rate program, I think it is this strategy, this core strategy of how to use data to affect change is, is phenomenal. I mean, and it's so simple. It's just, it's mind-boggling, like the simplicity of it all. But it seems to me that that knowledge of what you do and how you do what you do would be very beneficial um, spread around that group. And they may not know that you exist and, and, and all of that, 
and they're all very busy, so it's all you know, they all got to prioritize and whatnot. But I personally think that you know it would help your efforts with E-rates, and conversely, it would help their efforts with all the various things that they're doing, so that in the end, you know, we all benefit from that. I, mean, I don't tell you how to do your business, but I'm telling you how to do your business yeah. in this one phase. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're we're certainly big advocates of using um, uh, data to drive policy, and and are happy to talk about it and and how we approach it with with any organization. Um, you know, I think you one of the things you said earlier was 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 really quite interesting, which is you know the politicians listen to the polls because that's the data they have, and one of the things that we've noticed is that when you actually have real data about a problem, it gives people, it gives politicians on both sides of the aisle a way out of just the partisan debate, right? Mm -hmm. It gives them to say, okay, you know, because people at the end of the day, I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat, at the end of the day, most people are actually reasonable. And, um, you know, if there's reasonable data that everybody can agree on, that provides a way towards compromise, right? We've, had, mm-hmm. we've been tremendously fortunate that we've been able to generate terrific bipartisan support for the work that we're doing and for E-rate modernization. Whether it's come from the House of Representatives, where, where a bipartisan coalition of over 25 congresspeople uh, sent a letter to the FCC, um, from the Conference of Mayors, again, bipartisan, both sides of the aisle, letter to the FCC about E-rate modernization and the kinds of recommendations that we've been advocating for, or 50 of America's most prominent CEOs and investors who agreed, all agreed to put their name on a letter uh, to the FCC about this. There's incredible bipartisan support for this, and frankly, I think a lot of it is because it's about our kids, but a lot of it is about because there's data that everybody can agree on. Mm-hmm. That is, um, you know, I, 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 and I see where your point is because it is very easy to become partisan and emotional until you start looking at facts and you look at numbers, you know, because then you pretty much remove, you, you bring everybody into the discussion except for the far extremes because far extremes generally never find the middle. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but for the majority of folks, you know, when you can show – uh, you know, the reasonable numbers and in an objective format, you know, it definitely seems to make a big, uh, it definitely seems to make a big difference. So coming back to the, um, you know, the, the having a greater number of choices. Um, so you've described, uh, you know, how you go about doing that. You know, you show what the real, value is every time a new competitor is added to the mix and people have, you know, two options versus one and four options versus two. But is there is there a effort actually happening to um to, to come to this end? So to somehow or other come to a way to get more competitiveness into the system. Sorry, I don't entirely understand your question. Could you you say it again? Okay, so the issue of – well, you you described a process for how you would use data to show that if I've got uh, two competitors versus one, you know, the cost of my – what I pay for stuff is going to be X. If I have four competitors versus two, then I'm going to have, you know, less money to spend – I'm going to have – to spend less money because of that competitive factor, right? So I'm just, I guess I'm asking is, knowing that, are there efforts underway at the FCC to address the issue of competition? Yeah. So, you know, I think that um, that's one of the things that we hope to see in the uh, E-rate modernization uh, order that hopefully will come out in the next couple of months. Um, there's a few different things I think they're talking about. So one is how do we uh, provide subsidy funding to get other competitors to enter new markets, right? How do we subsidize the cost of fiber build-outs so that people will, will enter mar- new markets for schools? That's one approach. Um, a second issue is transparency, right? As we've talked about, if we could simply put up a database 
that a school district could go to and say, who are the vendors in my area that are currently selling to E-rate? That would be immensely helpful because too many of them today just call up whoever they've been buying it for or maybe one, one additional competitor. So, so providing transparency. Third, um, giving schools the option to self-provision, right? So there are many places in this country today where there are no competitors. There's like one phone company, right? That's it. And, and as the FCC did for their rural health care program that's part of the Universal Service Fund, um, the, uh, the, the, there they gave rural health care providers the option, if they could show that it was the most cost-effective approach of, of building their own network, their own fiber network. Now, they don't actually build it themselves. Of course, they go out and they you know, contract with somebody else. But but to, to, to actually build it, a fiber construction and maintenance firm. Um, but by giving schools that option, that's the ultimate competitive sort of backstop. And I think it's critical, and I think the FCC is thinking about that, um, and they're thinking about those kinds of uh, those, those other things. But there are other competitors that you can get into a market. You just have to create the right set of incentives and change the rules in such a way that people can actually access all those options. And again, when you say change the rules by which, how do, how do you mean that? Well, so for instance, for today, if you're a school and you want to um, hire someone to build a fiber network for you and, and, and maintain it and then operate it yourself, E-Rate mm-hmm. will not pay for that. So by a simple stroke of the pen, by adding that to the eligible services list, suddenly you've created more competition. Ah. Right? So, but that's so one example. Right. And that's the um, – I'm trying to remember who I had this conversation with actually earlier today about the, um, the stroke of the pen issue because basically uh, we have a number of, of, of telecom-related issues where folks are saying, well, if it were just – you know, if they would just you know, do an executive order or whatever the agency equivalent of an executive order is – then you can get past a whole bunch of these hurdles, right? Um, you know, access to dark fiber, the ability to, to build their own network, um, you know, the ability to, to, I don't know, range further, you know, further afield to find solutions and so forth. Um, it, it just then becomes a question of is there the will to do that knowing that you're going to face all the lobbyists the next day trying to convince you to, you know, unwrite that rule, <laughs> you know, it just, and, and that becomes, an, at least that, that, is a, that is perceived as a big barrier, you know, it's that whole thing of, yes, uh, Chairman Wheeler can, can, can take unilateral uh, action within the parameters of whatever his, you know, congressional charter is, but then it comes down to, well, will he do that? Because without a doubt, once the telcos see that, um, you know, you're empowering the schools to basically, or the community, to build their own broadband solutions. These guys go pretty much, um, you know, crazy, and then they want to kill it and kill everybody involved, and, you know, it just gets to be ridiculous. Yep, so, and, if you look, and if you look at the, if you look at the record, they've been trying to do exactly that. Um, and uh, uh, I think our point of view on this is, we should not um, fund school districts to build their own networks when they have access to affordable solutions from commercial providers. That just doesn't make good policy sense. And when we talk about affordable, what we mean is today that they can buy a gigabit wide area network connection between their schools for $750 a month or less and that they can buy internet access for $3 a megabit or less. If schools have access to that from a commercial provider, there's no reason for us to subsidize them. However, uh, them to build their own networks. However, if they can't get those kind of pricing, then actually we should be willing to subsidize because by building their own networks, even when you factor in the the upfront costs, um, they'll be able to get down to those kind of price points and that's critical not only so that the schools can actually get the bandwidth that they need, but also 
so that the E-rate program can afford to get all the schools the bandwidth that they need. One, one of the big things that we looked at in our report was if we just project forward how much bandwidth schools are going to need and we don't make massive improvements in pricing, the E-rate program is going to have to be $11 billion a year. Wow. Now, I don't have, I don't have much of a crystal ball, but I, do, I can say with a high degree of certainty the E-rate program is never going to be $11 billion a year. Um, right. So, uh, you know, in the foreseeable future. So um, we really have to make progress on this. Um, the telcos don't like the idea of, of getting overbuilt. Frankly, I don't like the idea of the telcos getting overbuilt as long as they're providing affordable services that meet schools' needs. But one of the issues, though, that this brings up is, the rule setting process. So, you know, because I, I watched the broadband stimulus program pretty closely from legislation to rules to implementation, and there were there were definitely a couple of spots along the way where the telcos influenced the rules in such a way that it basically protected them. You know, the what defines you know, broadband. The the, the 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 speed rate was so low it was beyond ridiculous. What does uh, what describes underserved? What describes served? You know, one one home in a zip code or whatever kind of designation. In other words, what I felt became an issue was the rules that that govern the game were being influenced by um by by the by the giant telcos. So in this position of, you know, going, taking data to, you know, leverage favorable policy from the FCC, don't I still have to worry about the fact that when push comes to shove and rules get put into place of what dictates underserved and so forth, that I've got to have some other ace up my sleeve as a public advocate in order to offset the, the influence of the lobbyists at that juncture. Yep. And, and, and you're absolutely right. That's, that's one of the big questions. You know, um, uh, as much as we've been successful in, in moving the policy agenda and getting the FCC focused on this and, um, you know, hopefully getting them uh, on board with, with the recommendations that we have, um, folks like uh, Verizon and AT&T, uh, you know, have incredible influence in Washington, D.C. and at the FCC. And, uh, you know, we're, you know, there's some things we agree on. I mean, one of the things that surprised us is that both, uh, both AT&T uh, and I think Verizon support the idea, maybe not Verizon, but AT&T supported the idea of focusing the program in broadband, even though AT&T sells a lot of phone service to a lot of schools. So that was, that was great, you know. Are they fighting against some of our recommendations? Absolutely. You know, will the data prevail? We'll see. Hmm. It does uh, it does bring up some interesting um, some interesting dilemmas there. No, no doubt, no doubt. So, who's who's your who's your best FCC? I don't know. Point person, champion, ally in this in this whole reform effort. Oh, well, I, I think the chairman of the FCC, Tom Wheeler, has, has done a terrific job um, of moving this forward. Um, I think he's made several speeches that um, we believe are, are right on the mark for how E-rate needs to be modernized. He's been a terrific ally. Um, Commissioner Rosenworcel, you know, she was the one who started getting this on the map. Her call for E-rate 2.0, uh, I think, was prescient. And, you know, she's been an incredible force for making sure that people understand how important this is. And, and we're, we're looking forward to having her support as well. And then you mm -hmm. can't forget Commissioner Clyburn. Commissioner right. Clyburn was the, the acting chair when the FCC, by a 5-0 vote, agreed to take on E-rate modernization. Um, or not 5-0, I guess it was 3-0 at that point because they were missing, oh, missing really two right. people. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, so under her leadership, uh, this whole process all got started. So, so all of them have been, uh, you know, key allies. Um, even uh, Commissioner Pai uh, has contributed a lot to this, de this, this debate already um, uh, in terms of sort of 
focusing people on making sure we're spending our E-rate funding on the things that, that really matter, the, the, on broadband, in terms of being, you know, putting the call out for making sure that we're getting the most out of every E-rate dollar and that, you know, schools are, are buying as effectively as they can and we're, we're getting the best prices. He's been an ally on, on those fronts. And Commissioner O'Reilly, who's new to the game, you know, he too is a believer in the importance of making sure we spend every dollar right, which is one of our key uh, key things. So I don't know if uh, Commissioner Pai and Commissioner O'Reilly will support the chairman's ultimate uh, uh, order, but, um, but you know, they've been supporters of, of getting this done. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things, we've only got about five minutes, so I want to get us ready to wrap up, but um, is there, what do you see are the likelihoods that we can somehow have the networks that are built by E-Rate play a bigger role in the communities that they're in? Yeah. So um, I think that's one of the reasons that our first um, inclination is wherever possible, we want um, commercial providers to be the providers to schools because when a commercial provider builds a network, it's not just the school that benefits, but they can use that network to serve all the customers in the community. Um, But again, we need to get affordable connections. And if the commercial providers won't provide affordable connections, then we need to to come up with other solutions. One of the specific things that I think the FCC can do is um, modify what they call their uh, cost allocation rules. So today, if you build a fiber, uh, if, you, if you pay for a, um, a fiber run to a school, um, the reason that that, you, you can put, you know, two strands of fiber in for the school or six strands of fiber in for the school, or you could put 196 strands of fiber in and use it for lots of other people. And the incremental cost would not be very different. Um, because most of the money is actually in the cost of digging the trench or getting up on the poles. So right. one of the things we think that the, the FCC could do is just say, look, we are doing this for schools. We're going to let providers pull a whole bunch more. We understand that they're getting some benefit because the, the, we're getting it to the school. But frankly, we don't care. It's going to benefit the rest of the community, and even if they limit it just to other community anchor institutions, um, it would still be a big win. And so we're hopeful that the, the commission is going to take a look at those cost allocation rules. Right. Because I mean, basically, as I understand it, if you build a network with E-rate dollars, you can't. You, there, there are a lot of limitations on what you can offer out to the community. Whereas I look at that and say. Um, you know, as you pointed out, if it costs me a million dollars to to wire a school or, or, or a school district, and it's going to cost you know an extra hundred grand to you know put some ex- you know just to pull some fibers through that could be made available to the rest of the community. You know, from a dollars and cents standpoint, it makes sense. But from what I'm understanding is that the rules say you can't do that, and so that's the change that needs to happen, right? That's, that's basically what you're saying. Exactly. Well, I guess time will tell. When do you think we'll be – you mentioned there, there's an order in the wings. Do you think that's going to be summer sometime or in the fall? Um, I think it's going to come this summer. Okay. All right, place your bets, folks. Place your bets. Um, excellent. Now, this has been a very good uh, conversation. You know, there. I think there are still – uh, as, as some folks look at it, there's still a lot of paperwork issues and, you know, there's a lot of hurdles and stuff that you have to go through. I mean, it, it, it sounds like they're making progress to remove a bunch of those hurdles, but obviously there's still more that could be done to just streamline the paperwork, I guess is the best way to describe it. So, well, that's another important thing is, you know, we've got to get this all online and, you know, E-Rate still lets people file their forms on paper. And uh, that just creates all kinds of issues, uh, both in terms of the efficiency with which the program can be administered, as well as the ability to look at the data and understand what's really going on. Okay. Well, look, we're going to have to wrap this show up. Evan, thank you very, very much for being uh, my guest today and explaining what you what you folks are up to. Uh, I am extremely supportive. I hope 
to you know keep in tab, uh, keep in touch with you folks, and you know let us know when when good stuff happens. And so keep up the good work. Uh, we'll we'll you know be in touch again. Uh, to my audience, thank you for listening in today on another show. I think this is very valuable information. Please pass it around. You know the work that Education Superhighway is doing is good stuff. And you should let your your school districts know what's going on and take advantage of their programs where you can. So, uh, everyone, thanks again for for being with us today. And we will be back tomorrow, actually. We're going to talk about uh, using wireless technologies to help close the digital divide. So you don't want to miss that show either. All right. Have a great day, folks. We'll talk again soon. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.